We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Let's turn our Bibles to First Chronicles, please, for our reading tonight, First Chronicles and 27. I had some reason, for some reason in my mind, the idea that after the first nine chapters of Chronicles, it would be a little bit smooth sailing as far as uh, how to read this, but uh, boy, I was wrong. I think that was maybe just the numbers portion of it, uh, the, well, the genealogy portion of it, rather, not the numbers portion of it, but uh, we still have a lot of organizational matters here in these verses, and so uh, bear with us as we read the Word of God in First uh, Chronicles and chapter 27. And the children of Israel, according to their number, the heads of uh, father's houses, the captains of thousands and hundreds, and their officers served the king in every matter of the military divisions. These divisions came in and went out month by month throughout all the months of the year, each division having 24,000. Okay, so some, uh, some mathematical uh, person out there, just keep track of all these 24,000s, okay, and tell us how many this is altogether. Over the first division for the first month, ah, there's a clue right there. Uh, was Joshabim, the son of Zabdiel, and his in, in, in his division were 24,000. He was of the children of Perez and the chief of all the captains of the army for the first month. Over the division of the second month was Dodai, the Aohite, and of his division, Miklot was the leader. Now, you might say that Mikloth with a kind of soft TH, but in the plural form in Hebrew, Miklot, more of a hard T. Uh, that's why I often pronounce it that way, but don't hold me to that, okay? Uh, also, so this fellow was the leader. In his division were 24,000. The third captain of the army for the third month was Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the priest, who was chief. In his division were 24,000. This was the Benaiah who was mighty among the 30 and was over the 30. In his division was Amizadab, his son. The fourth captain for the fourth month was Asahel, the brother of Joab and Zebediah, his son after him, and his division were 24,000. The fifth captain for the fifth month was Shamut, Shamhuth, the Israelite, and his division were 24,000. The sixth captain for the sixth month was Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite, and his division were 24,000. The seventh captain for the seventh month was Helez, the Pelonite, of the children of Ephraim, and his division were 24,000. The eighth captain for the eighth month was uh, Sibekai, the Hushathite of the Zarhites, and his division were 24,000. The ninth captain for the ninth month was Abiezar, the Anathothite of the Benjamites, and his division were 24,000. The tenth captain for the tenth month was Maharai, the Netophathite of the Zarhites, and his division were 24,000. The eleventh captain for the eleventh month was Benaiah, the Pyrethonite of the children of Ephraim, and his division were 24,000. Twelfth captain for the twelfth month was Heldai, the Netophathite of Othniel, and his division were 24,000. 
Furthermore, over the tribes of Israel, the officer over the Reubenites was Eliezer, the son of Zikri. Over the Simeonites, Shephathiah, the son of Maacah. Over the Levites, Hashabiah, the son of Kemuel. Over the Aaronites, Zadok. Over Judah, Elihu, one of David's brothers. Over Issachar, Omri, the son of Michael. Over Zebulun, Ishmaiah, the son of Obadiah. Over Naphtali, Jeremoth, the son of Azrael. Over the children of Ephraim, Hoshea, the son of Azaziah. Over the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joel, the son of Pediah. Over the half-tribe of Manasseh in Gilead, Iddo, the son of Zechariah. Over Benjamin, Jaasiel, the son of Abner. Over Dan, Azarel, the son of Jeroham. These were the leaders of the tribes of Israel. But David did not take the number of those 20 years old and under, because the Lord said he would multiply Israel like the stars of the heavens. Joab, the son of Zeruiah, began a census, but he did not finish, for wrath came upon Israel because of this census, nor was the number recorded in the account of the chronicles of King David. Do you understand there what it's saying as to the reasoning why that number should not have been taken? It was a matter of faith, a matter of trust in the Lord, that God would provide his promise and uh, no need to check up on him to make sure that that was the case. Verse 25, and as Maveth, the son of Adiel, was over the king's treasuries, and Jehonathan, the son of Uzziah, was over the storehouses in the field and the cities and the villages and in the fortresses. Ezri, the son of Kelub, was over those who did the work of the field for tilling the ground. And Shimei, the Ramathite, was over the vineyards. And Zabdi, the Shifmite, was over the produce of the vineyards for the supply of wine. Baal-Hanan, the Gedarite, was over the olive trees and the sycamore trees that were in the lowlands, and Joash was over the store of oil. I imagine, my friends, that this was not only an administrative position, uh, but also a position of some expertise in those industries so that they would administer and, and help the people to know what was the best way to administer those trees as far as maybe fertilizing and scheduling and pruning and those sorts of things. I don't know that for sure, but it just seems like a likely uh, scenario. And a Shittri, the Sharonite, was over the herds that fed in Sharon, and Shaphat, the son of Adlai, was over the herds that were in the valleys. Obil, the Ishmaelite, was over the camels. Jehdiah, the Maronathite, was over the donkeys. And Jaziz, the Hagrite, was over the flocks. You notice these guys must have had expertise and known how to uh, be expert in these matters of caring for these animals and helping them to reproduce the best way and, and be the strongest and, and so on. All these were the officials over King's, King David's property. Also, Jehonathan, David's uncle, was a counselor, a wise man, and a scribe. And Jehiel, the son of Hekmanai, was, the, was with the king's sons. Ahithophel was the king's counselor, and Hushai the archite was the king's companion. After Ahithophel was Jehoiada, the son of Benaiah, then Abiathar, and the general of the king's army was Joab. So here we have a summary of the setup of the nation of Israel's governance uh, and administrative affairs especially, but also the military protection for David and for the nation in those groups of 24,000 that were there. So... Uh, quite a, I guess you could say, contemporary passage really related to the time uh, there that uh, they found themselves in. And maybe you find a little bit hard to apply to yourself today. Um, 
one thing is we certainly can have an organized uh, situation or whatever we're doing, whether it's a church or a home or a government, and uh, we should know who's doing what and what responsibilities are divided amongst them. So that's First uh, Chronicles chapter 27. We'll come next time to the next chapter in the next evening service. Before then, though, let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 14, and I want to just go over this section again with you, uh, not, not repeating everything we talked about before, but certainly covering some new territory. I uh, remember, remember that I mentioned that this uh, account of the feeding of the 5,000 is recorded in all of the Gospels, all four of them, and uh, we're just focusing on Matthew's account, but I got to this point in my studies where I was saying, boy, I'm, I'm looking at Matthew, then I'm going to Mark, Luke, and John, and I'm looking at the parallel passages, and it's just I'm bouncing, you know, back and forth. And I suppose I could have used some of the software that I have to uh, render a parallel of them, but I like doing that myself. So what I did was I produced a table, four columns, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And what I do with, when I do that is kind of a format that I like to use is to uh, just copy and paste the text into each column and then break it into rows. And I move the chunks of text in the rows so that you know, Matthew's account, the part that talks about, you know, uh, you give them something to eat is parallel with the same in Mark, Luke, and John. And so you notice on this page that there are, uh, there's some text and then some blanks, and that is stuff that's not, that's not in John, say, that is covered in Mark. So it lets me kind of look across quickly, and I actually did two, two things with this tool then I looked across as I was studying this portion and looked all the way across to see what other details or things I might be missing uh, from Matthew that I wasn't observing carefully enough. And then I also read the, the uh, columns. So I went across them, but then I read them individually. I read this column and took notes on it, added to my study notes. And then I read the second column and added to my study notes, then the third, then the fourth in turn. So I got to read through these passages quite a number of times, um, both you know vertically and horizontally, I guess you could say, to uh, try to glean everything that I could. And this was a helpful exercise for me because each time I read through, I'd say, "Oh, I didn't think about that. Let me let me put this in and and add that to the notes." So that's what I did. The notes, I think you have them on the no, you don't have them on the website. You have the old edition of them. So I have to uh, update those on the, uh, on the website for you. But uh, you, you will find a few differences uh, from what I have here. So <clears throat> let me read the portion again and then see if I can uh, ex- extricate some of the new material from uh, what, we've, what I studied here and share it with you this evening. Matthew 14, verse 13 says, When Jesus heard it, he departed from there by boat to a deserted place by himself. But when the multitudes heard it, they followed him on foot from the cities. And when Jesus went out, he saw a great multitude, and he was moved with compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, his disciples came to him, saying, This is a deserted place, and the hour is already late. Send the multitude away, that they may go into the villages and buy themselves food. But Jesus said to them, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We have here only five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. 
Then he commanded the multitudes to sit down on the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish and looked up to heaven. He blessed and broke and gave the loaves to the disciples, and the disciples gave to the multitudes. So they all ate and were filled, and they took up twelve baskets full of the fragments that remained. Now those who had eaten were about five thousand men, besides women and children. Now you remember the background of this. Uh, we spoke of already on Wednesday night, Jesus had heard John the Baptist was killed and he went away. Uh, this was a difficult uh, moment for him in a human sense because that was his friend and relative who had been unrighteously killed for his stand for uh, the truth of God. He knew, though, that he was going to be facing similar <clears throat> persecution uh, soon enough. And so that would have all played in with uh, the concerns that he had for uh, for his ministry and for his work. Uh, but he, he took some time away, as I think it's uh, good for us to do re- regularly, uh, especially if we're in the kind of, um, you know, work-a-day world, uh, a go, 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 a busy, busy, um, take some time, rest, be with family, uh, just kick up your feet for a little bit. Uh, That was one application we took from this, but especially when you come to a time of difficulty, a time of grief, a time of sadness like these uh, folks were experiencing. The other thing was that uh, the apostles came back from their itinerant ministry, you might remember, and it was just at this same time. John, the the record of John's happenings and and Herod thinking that Jesus was was, uh, John the Baptist uh, reincarnated or resurrected or whatever, um, and then the disciples from their itinerant ministry come back and they share with Jesus what they had done, what they had experienced, how the demons were subject to them. And, and he said to them, come apart and rest a while. They had a situation where they were swamped. They didn't even have time to eat because the people were following them around. I mean, imagine all the crowds following Jesus. And then he sends out these disciples. They go do their thing and they come back. And what are they bringing? Tagging along with them probably are people too. Uh, interested in what they're doing and so and wanting to be healed and, and stuff. So they had all kinds of busy times there. So he, the Lord told them to come aside and take some rest. They were human after all. We have to recognize that. We are finite. We're not heroes. We're not superhumans. And we just have to take the time necessary to, to rest our, our bodies and our minds. The crowd had other plans uh, that then Jesus initially uh, indicated to the disciples. He's come apart to a solitary place and rest a while. Well, it didn't become solitary for very long. The people came and crowds gathered. And you can imagine the growing crowd over perhaps hours of time, thousands of people coming. If you think of the size of that crowd, it's 5,000 men besides women and children, which I've just estimated to be 15,000 just for sake of having a number. That's enough to fill a decent-sized basketball stadium, isn't it? Uh, That's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. And, of course, they're not maybe nicely organized into rows and columns of seats in a nice bowl shape. You know, they're out on this grassy area uh, and trying to listen to the Lord or maybe get close or hear what he's teaching or be healed by him. And so it's uh, quite, a, quite an operation that's going on there. The Lord did not respond with frustration to this change of plans. You know, you're tired and you're looking forward to the end of the day and then the phone rings. 
and it's something that has to be done right away. <clears throat> Don't respond with frustration. Uh, respond with the kind of thing that the Lord did here. He looked uh, at the crowd, <clears throat> and it says in verse 14, he was moved with compassion for them, and he healed their sick. It tells us elsewhere that he taught them the things concerning the kingdom of God. We need to be ready for that sort of thing, with or without sermon manuscripts, with or without a ton of preparation for the, that occasion that's in front of you. Uh, but over the course of time, you need to be able to share the word in a credible way with people who you run across. Uh, and that could be a random phone call. That could be a, a random encounter in the store. Um, it could be any number of, of opportunities that you come across. So when the opportunity comes, we can make use of that opportunity. The Bible tells us that they were like, this crowd was like sheep without a shepherd. Sheep without a shepherd. And that's the case for a lot of people today, isn't it? The massive population in the world are like sheep without a shepherd. Or else they have a bad shepherd. They have a bad guide. They're following the wrong thing. And... Uh, in this case, a lot of people that were just aimless and did not have uh, good guidance. Verses 15 and 16 now, when uh, the evening came, they had not had any food. Uh, sorry to talk about this if you're hungry. Uh, we, uh, we see the situation develop that, you know, there's thousands of people there and there's, there is no vendor for food. There's no takeout. There's no fast food. There's no catering available. Um, this is a very uh, difficult situation, trying to you know, produce a potluck dinner without any, without any pot and without any luck. Uh, you, know, you just don't have any, any uh, cooking utensils. You don't have any food um, you know, to make a food enough for these people. So, um, yeah, it's a bit, a bit of a, a situation here. So the Lord tells the disciples, you give them something to eat. Well, this is a test of their faith. This is a test of the disciples' faith. So after they became concerned about the situation, Jesus told them that they could give the crowd something to eat themselves. And we said last time on Wednesday, stop, just you know, stop the story right there and ask yourself, how would you respond? Knowing what you know, how would you respond to the Lord if he told you that? Darius, you give them something to eat. You know, Kevin, you give them something to eat. How would you respond? Well, the way that they could have responded is they could have thought to themselves, hmm, let me extrapolate from what the Lord has already done, raising people from the dead, doing all these miracles, calming the sea, uh, healing lepers, and so on. Maybe he could help us do this great thing. So they could have, and they, and they could have remembered too that the Lord promised that if you seek first the kingdom of God, he will provide you you know, the food and the drink and the clothing and the, the basics of life that you need. He will allow that to you. So uh, he could have, they could have then thought, well, the Lord could do some miraculous thing to assist us in providing the food. And so when the Lord said, you provide them something to eat, they could have said something like this, we can do that with your help. What would you like us to do to make that happen? But they didn't quite say it that way. They said it this way, we only have five loaves and two fish. 
you know, it's almost like you could hear them saying, you know, under their breath, like, you know, can't you see that? I mean, this is impossible. This can't be done. We only have five loaves and two fish. They could have done better if they had not said the word only. We have five loaves and two fish. You know what the Lord had when he created the heavens and the earth? He had nothing. Zero. There wasn't some hidden dark matter that he rearranged and made into something. There was nothing. There was God and his spirit and his son, the triune God, and that was it. Nothing else. He created everything from that. The Bible tells us in six days he made all things, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them he created. So they could, uh, well, it's a little early yet, and and we don't want to criticize the um, the disciples too too much because we probably would have been in exactly the same boat you know wondering who is this guy you know and it didn't really dawn on them immediately that you know this is the Christ the son of God that he is deity that he is the creator of the universe John chapter 1 verses 1 to 3 that he was in the beginning with God and he was God uh, Matthew chapter 16, we're not there yet, but it was, in, it was then that, that Peter recognized you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this was kind of dawning upon them. It was, it was coming. It was, you know, they were, they were learning. So we have to give them a little bit of a pass in the, in the sense that they should have, they, they, they didn't know what they should have, could have known, or what we would have liked to have known if we were in their shoes. Um, John 6 records that they also added, but what are they, that is the five loaves and the two fish, what are they among so many? These words indicate doubt, not faith. Instead, they could have said, Lord, we do have five loaves and uh, five loaves of bread and two fish. Can you bless them so as to feed these people? Now, the application that we took from this was that it's been well said that the Lord allows us to be involved in his work by using what we have, as small as it might be, but it must be done in faith without doubting. And we remember that the Lord is the one who gave the fish and the loaves in the first place, isn't he? That boy did not have that food by any other means but that God provided it for him or for his family to have, and he, uh, he, there he had it. As is everything else that we have from the hand of God. We, we, have, we use the resources that God gives us to do God's work, even if those resources at first seem insufficient to do the job. You might not, as a church, say, have enough resources to, uh, to run the ministry X, Y, or Z, but guess what happens? As you run those ministries, God provides through them to to help you to then carry them on, if he, if he pleases to have you do that. So he gives the resources. The resources for the harvest, as has been said, are in the harvest. The resources of the harvest are in the harvest. You start out with nothing when you start a new church, and by and by you have a group of believers who are supporting the work, and so they're actually the harvest, and they're providing for the work of the harvest to go on. <clears throat> We give and we often get back, not in the prosperity gospel way, but in a way in which God's God's grace ordains to supply so that his people have an abundance for every good work. 
Do you, do you hear the echoes of the Apostle Paul in that statement? 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8, May God give you that abundance that you'd have for every good work. See, they gave in, Corinthian, in the Corinthian church, and actually the other churches, they gave out of their poverty. They gave generously, and Paul is praying that they'd have then a return to be able to give again another time in the future and to have everything they needed for every good work. And the good works uh, don't always cost money, do they? They cost time, they cost effort, uh, but not necessarily always money. So God may give you uh, those resources in other ways. All right, so now the miracle. Food is created and faith is strengthened. In verses 18 to 21, Jesus said, Bring them here to me, the fish and the, the, the loaves. And he commanded them to sit down. Um, now, I mentioned at the end of our message last time, and I want to reiterate this, this is an historical account. This is not a story. This is not a legend, not a myth, not a fable. This is something that really happened. It is history. Just like all the other miracles in Scripture, like the crossing of the Red Sea, the resurrections from the dead, the healings, and so on, if this is not actual history, then we would have to conclude that the Bible is completely unreliable. Kind of goes back to what I said this morning about those who have no, they don't hold on to the faith. They don't hold fast to the faith, so they have nothing to share with others. Well, if they say that, you know, the Bible is not accurate on matters of science, not accurate on matters of history, not accurate on matters of geology, uh, you know, not accurate in terms of miracles, what's left? What's left for it to be accurate about? Nothing. It's just, you either take it or leave it. Okay? The Bible is God-breathed, but if you take that this is just a story, that this is just a fable, then you have a non-God-breathed, non-infallible, or in other words, fallible, not true, worthless book. But we know from the Bible's own testimony and the Spirit's work in us that the Scriptures are indeed God's Word, and there's no doubt about that to us who are God's people. So the Lord commanded the small provision of food that they had was to be brought to Him. They did that. And then he had the crowd sit down to prepare them to eat. Just imagine the scenario in your mind. Mark 6, 39 says he directed them to sit down in groups. There was a large area of green grass there, which makes me think of one word, picnic. Here they are having a picnic in the grass with the Lord at the head providing for them. Luke 9 adds the detail that they were to sit in groups of about 50 each, which would make 100 groups if there were 5,000. Of course, there were maybe three times that many or four times that many people, so uh, they would have to be you know, 300 groups of 50 each. Some of the groups maybe have been near to each other, and so the ranks, they started to kind of look like military ranks, so you might have had 100 here and 50 there and 100 here. So that's why one of the other portions of Scripture talks about groups of hundreds and fifties. Um, <clears throat> The Lord gave thanks for the food for, uh, to our, our Heavenly Father. Notice, uh, where does it say that? He blessed and broke. The food just kind of goes over it quickly, but it says before that, looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke and gave those uh, loaves to the disciples. Um, this is a passage. Oh, it says in John six eleven. by the way, he gave thanks. He not only blessed and broke, but he gave thanks for the food. So this is one passage that we use as justification for why we pray before our meals. We pray before our meals because the Lord prayed before his meal here. 
And we also do so because in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, the Bible talks about those who will uh, come telling us that uh, we're not to do certain things um, in uh, 1 Timothy 4. Uh, in, in, in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who, receive, who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused, the text says, if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and by prayer. So we pray before our meals to set apart the food for its use in us. Um, and we thank God for it because if God decided, he could just take away that food that was on the table before you just like that. He could take it he could set up a situation where tonight, if you're expecting to go home and have dinner, there's nothing there for you to have. Um, he could put you in a situation where you don't have, the, or where the stores have empty shelves and you can't get the food that you want to get. I mean, it's true. We have to make sure that we give thanks as if it does really matter and it's not just a formality, because it's not just a formality. Talk to some of our, you know, brothers and sisters in the Lord throughout the world who don't get three, you know, fattening meals every day whenever they want to eat. So the Lord gave thanks. And as he did that, the miracle occurred. Uh, they distributed a miraculously sufficient amount of food supply to the gathered thousands. Um, there is a, uh, as there are many movies made of the Gospels, and there's one, and I, I have to confess, I don't remember the name of it, but I had seen it before, and I looked it up again, and I just watched the segment that portrays this miracle, and it's kind of interesting how they portray it in a way that, you know, you don't see the actual instant that the food multiplies, but it just keeps coming and coming and coming, and so it gives you something, you know, to kind of imagine as you look at the scene with the grass and the thousands of people and the Lord looking up to heaven and blessing the food, giving thanks. And, and then, you know, this little basket that has the fish and the loaves in it suddenly turns into baskets that they're distributing. You know, you can imagine how much food that would have to be to feed all those people. And they all ate and were full. So they did not just have a nibble. They did not just have a snack. They did not just divide up the food, you know, in very small pieces for everybody. They had several pieces of bread, perhaps, several fish or a large one. No one went away from the Lord's table hungry. I say the Lord's table. I mean the Lord's picnic table, the Lord's provision. And so that's what happened. Now, um, go on. After they ate, it's almost a shame to just... You know, you, you want to stop and just ponder and read more about this. Like, how did this happen? I'd like to see a video, you know, instant replay of this. How, how did this go down? But it just runs over it and just speaks about it like it's matter of fact. And it says they ate and were filled. And then they gathered the leftovers. They gathered the leftovers. There were 12 baskets worth of leftovers full of the fragments that remained, stuff that they hadn't eaten, uh, you know, 
extra from the trays that they had, or the baskets that they had passed out. The fascinating thing to me has always been there were more leftovers than there were to begin with. Do you ever think about that? There was more at the end than there was at the beginning. Uh, it's just amazing. I, I you know, I, I don't know how that, it just, it just blows me away to think about that. Um, you know, when you have dinner and you have leftovers, there's always fewer leftovers than there were at the beginning of the meal. There's never more. Um, now, it says 12 baskets. Now, the feeding of the 4,000, how many baskets did, you, did they take up? Do you remember? The Lord asked them this question later in the Gospels. How many baskets when the, you know, how many baskets in each case? Well, 12 in the first case, seven in the second case, seven large baskets they took up. Now, what's the significance of the number 12? Well, somebody, some interpreter, some pastor, some teacher might, you know, try to delve into that. I'm not going to because I don't think there is a significance to it. I think maybe if there's anything, it meant that, uh, you know, each disciple could carry one of the baskets and it would be handy, uh, you know, divided up that way evenly. Um, so there's, you know, besides being one basket per disciple, there's really nothing here, 12, 7, you know, the number of completeness or whatever. Uh, it, it's, I, I just, you can't, you know, go there and, and try to find some, you know, significance to those numbers or numerology. We don't interpret the text of Scripture that way. Now, they gathered up these leftovers. What do you suppose they did with them? I presume that they ate them later. Or maybe they gave them away to others in need. Maybe they sent some home with some of the people that were there. I don't know, but uh, we grant that the text does not specifically say what they did with the leftovers, but apparently they did not leave them to the birds and other scavenging animals. They did not waste them. They did not throw them away, but they gathered them up. And uh, it tells us elsewhere the idea was to gather them up, let, let nothing be you know, left behind. Now, the disciples definitely did not turn those pieces of food into relics. You know what I mean by relics? You know, can you imagine some crusty, musty, moldy old piece of bread that, you know, uh, uh, a church leader says, look, this is one of the pieces of bread that was at the feeding of the 5,000. You know, and people bow down and worship it or whatever. They didn't do that. They didn't turn it into a fetish or a relic to be stored up and worshipped by later people. It was just food. It was just food that the Lord had created. Yes, perhaps out of, in a sense, nothing, out of the, the little amount that was there. Um, you know, here's an example of the uh, violation, if you will, of the law of, of physics that says that uh, the conservation of mass must be observed. I don't think so. Not in this case. Um, so what, the quick application here, my take on this uh, is not anything more than just this. Don't waste the Lord's provision, whatever that provision was, whether it was miracle, uh, miracle provision or not. I'm not suggesting that the Lord supplies by miraculous provision today this way. I'm just saying, however you came upon the resources of God, don't waste them. You know, it's not like, oh, I came upon a windfall, you know, uh, an inheritance or, uh, or uh, whatever. So, something fell into my lap and, you know, I can, you know, throw all of my principles to the wind and not 
use those resources wisely because they just came to me, you know, that way. And I can just be wasteful and extravagant and do stuff that I shouldn't do or normally wouldn't do. Uh, don't waste the Lord's provision that he gives to you. Make sure that you make the best use of it. Uh, and, you know, we could think about, you know, all of that. If you, if you, if you don't, there may come a time of want, which you don't want because you were unwise about earlier provisions from the Lord. We could talk about how Joseph saved up 20% during the uh, great years of supply uh, and then uh, used them to dole out to the people as the years of famine wore on and so on. Well, the multitudes went out to find Jesus. Where are the multitudes going to find him today? Where are they going to learn about Jesus? Of course, nobody in per, you know, finds him in person on the earth today. Um, but the analogous situation is this. People have to come to the true churches if they are to find Jesus. There they will find the message of Christ. They'll find the people of Christ, the provision of eternal life from him, and they will find the love of Christ as it's exercised through the people of God, through the Lord's people. And so instead of going out to a remote place on a mountain to hear the teaching of the Lord, people should come to churches to hear the word of God and to meet and learn about the Lord Jesus Christ. And maybe we introduce them along the way to church before they get there so that they will be more interested to come and hear what God has to say through his word. That's how we know Jesus today. That's how we come to him and receive the blessings of God through the Son. And, uh, of course, we don't expect miraculous healings and things like that today because the Lord is not present with us, but he will be in the future. And we look forward to that with great anticipation. And uh, I can't imagine. I'm looking forward to how, the, how rich the provision will be during the kingdom of Christ on the earth and uh, how, how he will supply both for health and agricultural prosperity and uh, for justice and righteousness to reign on the earth and all of that. Looking forward to it. This is just a preview of the coming kingdom in that sense. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for feeding those people and teaching us through it a number of lessons. Later on in John 6, Lord, you remind us that some of those people came, many of them came just for the bread, just for the welfare, and not for the teaching. And I pray that we will not be so crass, but that we will be uh, ones who love the teaching of your word and want to receive it and not just uh, think about the miraculous things that you've done and, uh, and how you provided. So we thank you. Tonight, Lord, I pray that you'll give each one of these dear ones who is here and online participating, give them rest. I pray that you would strengthen their souls and their bodies through the ministry of the Word today, through the fellowship that we've been able to share, through just being with us, even if it's remote, to be uh, recharged through that means. And Lord, uh, draw us close to yourself. I pray that this week will be a special week for many of us as we consider how to, uh, to be more in your word, more in prayer, better witnesses for you, that we conquer sin in our lives and have victory over it, that we have a, an uplifted spirit as we think about the joy of our salvation, as we put away complaining and disputing, and as we become more and more blameless and harmless without fault in this crooked generation and looking forward to the reward of good service that we can have if we have fruit that remains. Give us that fruit 
Lord, evermore we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.